first reading this morning is a reading from Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah 62, verses 1 to 5. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn, and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication, and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall not be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hepzibah. My delight is in her, and her land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Our New Testament reading is from John 2, verses 1 to 11. A familiar passage of the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thanks be to God. A good many years ago, the Church Missionary Society produced a study resource for churches <clears throat> entitled The Christ We Share. It was a collection of images of Christ from a range of cultures from around the world. This image that I hope we're going to see here was one of the images in that set, and it was one that's familiar from my childhood. It hung on the wall of my Sunday school room, which I think rather dates me. <clears throat> but alongside this, in that set, were rather more challenging images. There was this Asian representation of Christ stilling the storm. And another one showing Christ in the form of a traditional icon, but as a Maasai, 
<coughs> excuse me, as a Maasai Mara chieftain. And then Christ as a Rastafarian. And images that challenge ideas of the gentle Jesus, meek and mild fi figure. And so we have this rather thought-provoking image of the angry Christ that rather stares out at you. But the image that I'm most interested in this morning is this contrasting but equally striking image of the laughing Christ. Jesus here in this image is caught in the middle of a belly laugh. This is an extraordinary joyous picture of Christ. The source of this picture is somewhat obscure, although it's thought that it originated in Brazil in the communities of the poor that were part of the liberation theology movement of the 20th century. And it's interesting what happens when you fit pictures like this into particular stories. And I want to leave this image up this morning as a kind of backdrop to the sermon as we reflect on the gospel story of Jesus turning the water into wine. If Jesus ever laughed like this, I suspect he did at this kind of celebration, not least after the good stuff began to flow. So this is going to stay as a backdrop. And when you switch off from my sermon, as switch off you will at some point, just begin to explore in your own mind how this image informs your reading of that story. On the surface, this is a great story of Jesus coming to the rescue of a party that was about to fall flat. And it's a story that is high in symbolic content. At the end of the story, John tells us that this is the first of the signs that revealed Jesus' glory. For the Gospel writer John, the miracles always point beyond themselves. They are signs indicating something of Jesus' identity and purpose. And of course, we cannot ignore the fact that the containers that Jesus used to fill with water are containers that were usually used for ceremonial washing. This story is about so much more than the reviving of a flagging wedding celebration. There is something here about Jesus transforming the way in which we relate with God. And even the very first words of the story, as John tells them, are full of symbolic meaning. When does this story happen? It happens on the third day. And we know what else happens on the third day in the story of Jesus. John couldn't be much clearer. Look out for signs of resurrection and new life in this story. All of that is here in this story. And yet this morning what I want to do is to focus on three aspects of this story that make me feel just kind of slightly uncomfortable. They're slightly awkward, that make me take a double think as I reflect on them. The first of the awkward parts of this story is Mary's part in the story. You see, it seems as if Jesus initially was reluctant to help out. It's not Jesus who sees the problem in the first place, it's Mary. 
And Jesus seems to show no enthusiasm at all for doing anything. When Mary first approaches Jesus, I don't think he's got this look on his face. I think it's much more of a fed-up look that he has on his face. Why are you talking to me about it, he says. It's not my problem. And the human impatience of Jesus is then backed up, as we often do, with some theological justification. My time has not yet come. This isn't the right time and place, mother, he says. And Mary just seems to take no notice. She takes the part of the controlling parent who will not allow the modesty of her son to hold him back. And it's almost as if she forces Jesus' hand. She summons the servants, do whatever he tells you, she says. And then Jesus gets on with what Jesus does. Now, in this interchange between Mary and Jesus, I think we confront ourselves with something of the awkwardness of prayers of intercession. Mary, if you like, here is acting as an intercessor on behalf of the groom's family. She sees them in trouble, she knows that somebody can help, who just happens to be her son, and she pleads their case. And while we may want to join in the celebration that follows, there seems to be something just a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit awkward in this exchange that's going on. Especially if we ask too many questions about whether or not Jesus really initially wanted to do anything. But I think this awkwardness is actually an inevitable part of living in a world in which we dare to believe that God might just make a difference in response to our prayers. And we cannot get away with that awkwardness. We cannot ease our way out of it. If we believe in a world in which God hears the prayers of his people and responds to those prayers, we will always find ourselves asking uncomfortable and difficult questions. Does it mean that God was reluctant to help in the first place? Did he only respond because he was asked? If God is a God of love and he can break into our world to change and transform our lives, then why does he sometimes do so and others not? And then in response to prayer, why doesn't God just take the initiative and do something? And there's a kind of awkwardness there, isn't there? But of course... If we live in a world in which God does not respond to the prayers of his people, then I think we're living in a much poorer world, even though it is a much neater and less logical and more logical world. The love and generosity of God as we meet in Jesus is the love and generosity of a God who enters into genuine partnership with his creation as he works out his ways of transforming love. He doesn't simply want to transform this world on his own. He invites us to add our meagre love to his, and he even invites us to add our meagre initiative to his initiative in the world, so that we all play a part together. It's not out of reluctance that God asks for our prayers in order to change and transform the world, 
but because he only wants to do this work of transformation together with us. And in intercession, we throw ourselves into the mystery of this God who works in this world to make a difference. But we do so knowing that we can never control God. We do so offering our love to enter into partnership with God's love in the open adventure of creation. But knowing that we will always be left with slightly awkward and difficult questions. This miracle took place on the third day. When we live with Jesus, we live in a world always of third day possibilities, in which water can sometimes change into wine, in which the crucified can be raised to new life. But even when the wine runs out, and when we find ourselves still at the foot of the cross, and our heartfelt pleading seems to be met with silence, we discover the consolation of knowing his presence with us, transforming the place of sorrow into a place of encounter. But in intercession, we will never be able to run away from the difficult, awkward, sometimes jarring questions in this open world. The second thing that makes me slightly awkward in this story is that the story doesn't appear to meet the deep human need that most of the other miracles of Jesus meets. The wine running out at a party hardly seems to be of the same order as someone suffering from leprosy or blindness or demon possession. The stilling of the storm meets the disciples in the depths of their fear. The feeding of the 5,000 can be seen as an act of compassion of people who are genuinely hungry. But in contrast, this kind of rescuing of this failing party just seems to be slightly trivial. The best spin that we could put on this miracle, I suppose, is that the host was actually too poor to be able to afford sufficient wine for the occasion. But there's no mention of that in the telling of the story. Although this event may be high in symbolic meaning, it is rather low in meeting genuine humanitarian need. You could almost dare to think that this is just a case of Jesus showing off in front of his mother. For those of us who are open-minded in the way in which we read the New Testament and allow ourselves to ask questions of well, act what actually happened, I suspect that this is one of those stories that we would be quite content to put into the category of just a little bit questionable. And our faith wouldn't be rocked too much if somebody was able to demonstrate that this story has been embroidered in its telling over the years. Because when it boils down to it, it's just kind of a little bit questionable. So is it embarrassing that this story is here? Or is it important that it's here? I think what I want to say is that its embarrassment factor is actually part of its significance. You see, if God's life-transforming presence is only to be encountered in life-limiting experiences, when we're at our place of deepest need 
and deepest fear or when we are in our deepest darkness, then surely our experience of God is going to be the poorer. Of, God, of course God meets us in those places, but he doesn't only meet us in those places. And if we believe that we're sharing in God's transforming work of love in the world, only when we are facing up to those major issues of justice, peace and hope, then our understanding of God's involvement in the world is going to be severely restricted. Of course God wants to be with us in meeting those big needs, but he also calls us to be alert to his presence in the domestic and the everyday as well. Most of the time, we are living our lives in the run-of-the-mill world, dealing with immediate relationship problems, with mundane challenges, with the faults and foibles of family, friends and colleagues, juggling with all of our various responsibilities, having to get ourselves out of the muddles that we create of our lives. That's where most of our lives are lived most of the time. And what is so important about the telling of this story is that it's in the middle of an everyday world of a village wedding where something quite extraordinary has happened and where something of third day significance has taken place. And there's something in this story of an invitation for us to be alert to the footprints of the God of the third day in the day-in and day-out realities of our lives, discovering those places and times when the ordinary of our lives becomes the extraordinary, because those moments become places of encounter with God and moments of transformation. The God of the third day is the God of the everyday, whose glory is able to break into the mundane with transformative power. But perhaps it's more comfortable and less awkward to keep God to those life-limiting moments and those significant things. And then the third awkward and uncomfortable part of this story. And that's the sheer scale of what Jesus does. Extravagant doesn't really express it. Jesus doesn't just supply a few extra bottles of plonk. He goes quality. Only the best will do. And he goes big. Really big. Six containers holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now that's 75 to 115 litres. And I've been using my A-level maths on this. Let's say they're each 100 litres. You've got six containers holding 100 litres. That's 600 litres of wine. Pretty good, my maths. If a large glass of wine is 250 millilitres, that makes 2,400 large glasses of wine. So if there are 240 people at this wedding, they've each got 10 large glasses of wine each. It wouldn't have only been Jesus who was looking like this at the end of that. But generosity of this sort can be embarrassing. Have you ever been embarrassed by somebody else's generosity? Had that uncomfortable moment when somebody you don't know that well gives you an unexpected 
rather over-the-top present for Christmas or birthday. <laughs> Difficult to know quite how to respond, isn't it? And often I think we do get embarrassed by extravagant generosity. We don't know how to deal with it. See, this gesture of Jesus goes over the top and seems to be on the point of being wasteful. And yet this story fits into the long story of God's acts of generosity that are always embarrassingly over the top. And we do what we can to play it down, to make him altogether more measured, more calculating. When Baptist Praise and Worship was published in 1991, there was much discussion about the changes that were introduced to the wording of a number of hymns. One of those was the Harvest Hymn, Come Ye Thankful People, Come. In the previous edition of the hymn book, we sung the words, God our Maker doth provide for our wants to be supplied. In the new hymn book, we were invited to sing, God our Maker will provide for our needs to be supplied. Now there's part of me that understands this change. God doesn't just pander to our every want, but actually God's generosity goes far beyond just supplying our needs. Even in creation, God is far more abundant than that. He's much more generous in what this world affords. It's not just basic needs. A God who's interested only in supplying needs is a rather stingy God. And certainly not the God of the scriptures who always goes beyond all of our expectations. In the words of another hymn which thankfully weren't changed, but we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own. And some of us find this image of the laughing Christ uncomfortable because we would prefer Jesus to be rather more controlled, rather more on the sidelines of our life with a warm, encouraging smile, rather than getting stuck in with a great belly laugh at the heart of our lives. And too often we want to display wanton displays of goodness because it makes us feel uncomfortable in the more calculating way that we want to live our lives. If this image is from Brazil, then let me conclude with quoting some words from another Brazilian, Dom Helder Camera. Lord, isn't your creation wasteful? Fruits never equal, the seedlings abundance. Springs scatter water, the sun gives out enormous light. May your bounty teach me greatness of heart. May your magnificence stop me being mean, seeing you a prodigal and open-handed giver. Let me give unstintingly, like God's own. Your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. Gracious God, rejoicing in your blessings, trusting in your loving care for all, we bring you our prayers for the world. We pray for the created world, for those who rebuild where things have been destroyed, for those who fight hunger, poverty and disease, 
for those who have power to bring change for the better and to renew hope. In the life of our world, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. We pray for our country, for those in leadership who frame our laws and shape our common life, who keep the peace and administer justice, for those who teach and those who heal, for all who serve the community. In the life of our nation, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. We pray for people in need, those for whom life is a bitter struggle, those whose lives are clouded by death or loss, by pain or disability, by discouragement or fear, by shame or rejection. In the lives of those in need, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. We pray for those in the circle of friendship and love around us, children and parents, sisters and brothers, friends and neighbours, and for those especially in our thoughts today. In the lives of those we love, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. We pray for the church in its stand with the poor, in its love for the outcast and the ashamed, in its service to the sick and the neglected, and in its proclamation of the gospel. In the life of your church, your kingdom come, O Lord, your will be done. Eternal God, hear these prayers, the spoken and the silent. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all praise and glory forever. Amen. Amen.